Hello and welcome to the Amateur Austenite. My name is Frances Duncan. I'm an author and the founder of the Jane Austen Society of New Zealand. My co-host is my friend Sean. Good evening. And today we are discussing chapter 17 of Persuasion by Jane Austen. In chapter 17, we meet Anne's old school friend, Mrs. Smith. Anne goes to visit her a bunch. She's not well. Anne's family discovers that Anne has been visiting Mrs. Smith and thinks, this is a terrible use of her time and she should be sucking up to their relations instead. Mr. Elliot and Lady Russell are both on Anne's side of the argument. Sort of. Sort of? You reckon? Well, as we listen to the rest of the chapter, you realise that Mr. Elliot seems to be on anybody's side of the argument. Yes. Depends who he's talking to. The chapter ends with this dissection of his character, where Lady Russell's trying to convince Anne that he's great and he's interested in her and she should marry him. But Anne will not be convinced. She could not be satisfied that she really knew his character. She distrusted the past. He was not open. There was never any burst of feeling, any warmth of indignation or delight at the evil or good of others. He was too generally agreeable. She could so much more depend upon the sincerity of those who sometimes looked or said a careless or a hasty thing than of those whose presence of mind never varied, whose tongue never slipped. And I think that's why twice we've seen Captain Wentworth pull a face. And you can see what he's thinking, even though it isn't necessarily appropriate to the situation. Lady Russell is seducing Anne with flattery and ideas of being her mother, going into her mother's role. It does appeal, but... I think as well, Anne realised she doesn't want to be her mother's shadow. And there's also, I think if I remember rightly, there was also a statement along the lines of implying that her mother wasn't necessarily quite as happy in her marriage as she might have been. And it's the image of Mr. Elliot speaking for himself which brings Anne back from this. But for a few moments, her imagination and her heart were bewitched. The idea of becoming what her mother had been, of having the precious name of Lady Elliot first revived in herself, was a charm which she could not immediately resist. Oh, I think anybody would find that difficult. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. This is really an interesting chapter. It's a lovely one. Because we are looking at two different cultures within the same environment, two completely different characters are being examined here. So we have Anne and her friend Mrs Smith. And it starts off with Anne visiting her former governess. And it's because Anne is lovely and has good manners that she follows up with an old governess that then she even hears about Mrs. Smith. That's right. Anne is one for doing her duty gracefully and with pleasure. She, far more than Elizabeth, has taken on the role of Lady of the Manor in many respects. The less, I wouldn't say necessarily attractive ones, but certainly the ones that... The duties. The duties. Rather than the fruits. Yes. Perhaps. Anne and Mrs. Smith, who was Miss Hamilton, were at school together. Miss Hamilton looked after Anne when she was sad that her mother had died, because that's when she went to Bath and went to school. And then when she's 18 or 19, Miss Hamilton leaves school and gets married. Then she has a great time with her husband, but then he dies. And she gets sick. So she's about 30 now. She was a widow at 28. 31, I think it says later in the chapter. 1 and 30. And she suffers with severe rheumatic fever, which settled in her legs and has made her a cripple. 
And Not that we'd use the word cripple these days. No, but rheumatic fever is still a very serious illness in New Zealand, particularly for people who live in substandard housing, in damp housing, in crowded conditions, and all those types of environments of which, of course, there's far too many. Of course, it can also lead to heart damage. So um, it's a serious illness. So it's understandable with her fall from grace, shall we say, that she's no longer rich, that she would end up in that sort of housing so that she could catch this. Mm-hmm. The thing that I find quite scary is she can't move yeah. unaided. And she has no servant, so she's reliant on her landlady and her nurse. But what would she have done if she hadn't had a decent landlady? One realises the vulnerability. That's very scary. Yes. And this is where, you know, living in a very humble way, her character comes through. Oh, she's got an amazing personality. Mrs. Smith had good sense and agreeable manners. Neither sickness nor sorrow seemed to have closed her heart or ruined her spirits. She has resources that many people lack. You'd expect her to act like Mary. Mary would... Actually, it's a very, very good comparison because... Mary, who's this hypochondriac, complaining all the time, when really she's got a wonderful husband, her kids, lovely house, she's got everything going for her, and yet she's got absolutely no strength of character whatsoever. This Miss Smith is so completely different. I liked the description that Austin gives about the comparison over time of each character, Anne being blooming on the cusp of womanhood, and now she's this lovely young woman but she's no longer blooming. And, of course, Miss Hamilton had all the glow of health and confidence, but now is poor and firm widow. They've changed roles. But they still find, as Anne found, this whole good sense and agreeable manners. I love the phrase, neither the dissipations of the past, and she had lived very much in the world, nor the restrictions of the present. Neither sickness nor sorrow seemed to have closed her heart or ruined her spirits. I've underlined specifically that sickness, more sorrow, and written, Austin loves alliteration. Yes, isn't it lovely? Because she really does. Yes. Give me some alliteration. There was an elasticity of mind, disposition to be comforted, mm. the power of turning readily from evil to good, of finding employment. This is the other thing, isn't it? When you look at Sir Walter's and Elizabeth's attitude to their tenants and their so-called lessers and things and in theory mrs smith is gentry and yet she gets on well very very well with her landlady and she's willing to accept help and reciprocate by you know learning skills to help herself finding employment which carried her out from herself that's the most amazing part of this she's quite severely sick unable to move for herself and she is doing for others She was being a proper woman of the gentry and trying to provide for those who are less fortunate than her. I know, and I really love this, but she's finding for, you know, the less fortunate. But there is this sort of pampered woman that the nurse has been looking after that she's selling all her goods at for a much higher profit. (laughs) (laughs) I do not suppose the situation my friend Mrs. Rock is at present will furnish much either to interest or edify me. She is only nursing Mrs. Wallace of Montville Buildings. A mere pretty, silly, expensive, fashionable woman. Jane Austen is really emphasising the importance of charity, of giving and receiving of money, of visits and of gifts, because you could say that Anne visiting her is also an act of charity. 
But Anne doesn't think of it as charity, of course. The term charity has been a little bit debased and it's, it now comes with a sense of condescending and patronising in its worst form. Whereas in the St James Bible, which is the kind of phrase, it's faith, hope and charity. And charity is the greatest of the three. And we now equate charity with love. So it isn't just the giving of alms, it's that you have charitable thoughts towards somebody, you have kind thoughts towards somebody. It's not just making sure they're fed. Whereas now we tend to be, you can only be charitable because you're up here mm. to the less fortunate amongst us. So therefore you're superior. A lot of people don't like to accept charity because it has that stigma about it. Whereas when it's given in love, it's completely different. But I like the phrase where she talks about Mrs. Wallace I have nothing to report but of lace and finery, and I mean to make my profit from Mrs. Wallace, <laughs> however. And I love that because there's a, there's a humour in it. It's Again, it's not malicious. It's just that wry sense of humour that you have to smile at it. And there's foreshadowing here. You should recognise the name of Mrs. Wallace <laughs> and Marlborough Buildings and go, wait, I know that person. Yes. The beautiful Mrs. Wallace that Sir Walter can't wait to meet. So Walter and Elizabeth find out about Mrs. Smith. They were not much interested in anything relative to Anne, but they ask enough questions to figure out what's happening. Mrs. Smith? Mrs. Smith? A widow Mrs. Smith? One of 5,000 Mr. Smiths? He goes into a good rant. Doesn't he just? And what is her age? 40. No, sir, she's not one of 30. Mrs. Smith, of all people and all names in the world, to be the chosen friend of Miss Anne Elliot and to be preferred by her to her own family connections. There is a huge comparison between Mrs. Clay and Mrs. Smith right there, and he cannot see it. Mrs. Clay has the good manners to leave the room at this point. She had been present when all this had passed. Imagine saying that in front of her. And that's why I have a certain amount of sympathy for Mrs. Clay. She's fortunate she's fit and healthy and not unattractive, despite her slightly intruding teeth or whatever it was. I can't and remember. Freckles. Mm, and freckles. It still must be quite galling to be in that situation, to be living around it. So Anne refuses to go to the Dyrumples with her family and keeps her appointment with Mrs. Smith. Mr. Elliot and Lady Russell go to the Dyrumples and spend the whole evening talking about Anne. I know. <laughs> Mr. Elliot thinks her a most extraordinary young woman in her temper, manners, mind, a model of female excellence. And Anne gets quite flattered by this when Lady Russell tells her. After all, she spends most of her time being told she's less than worthy. Anne still doesn't put a lot of stock in it. It says, supposing such attachment to be real. Well, she's an observer, and she has observed how he behaves around everybody else. And she's observed that he always seems, you know, he might talk one way, but he's always very pleasant to people all the time. So you can not really tell what he's thinking at all. He changes depending on his audience. Yes. There was one quote of Mrs. Smith's which stood out to me. There is so little real friendship in the world. Considering she's such a positive person, this is a huge thing for her to be saying, especially when Anne is showing such friendship towards her and turning up and seeing her. But I also wonder if, spoiler, 
she's thinking about Mr. Elliot when she says this. I think she is. I think it can't help but... Uh, yes, let's not be the spoiler, but yes, there's no doubt whatsoever, I, I feel, that she's reflecting upon where are all her friends, where are all her, her husband's friends? Now she's a widow and infirm. They're all left. You know, where were her friends? They're all fair-weather friends. So she's now found new friends amongst the nurses, amongst the landladies, you know. And now restarted her friendship with Anne, whom I'm sure she's confident that even when Anne moves back, we'll still keep in touch. She falls into a really good crowd. And this is something I've really noticed about this book, that there are a lot of really good, decent people. Like decent ordinary people. Decent ordinary people, yes. Mm. Who care less about rank than others. And it's probably intentional to show the difference between them and the Elizabeths and Sir Walters of the world. You get the same with... The Musgroves. Musgroves. And the Harvels. Harvels. None of whom. They're much more about it's the person that matters. That doesn't mean to say they treat people with disrespect. It's just that they realise there's more to people than a title. And I think that could potentially be seen as quite revolutionary for the time. These books are very much about ordinary people, really. The people who are reading the books. You know, up till now, a lot of it was your Gothic novels and everything. You've got some count and people like that. Your European nobility and even the English novels, you know, they're written by ladies and with all that aristocratic background really and even some of the other ones where you the nobility are almost like the central characters rather than the ostensible ones but these are just ordinary gentry granted you're not talking about the working classes and that you know there's no books here about the servants per se or the servants point of view but then again Jane wasn't a servant she wrote about what she knew which is the trials of being on the lower gentry To a certain extent, she would have seen a lot of that with her brother's wife, who was not that keen on them. History has it that Edward's wife, Elizabeth, did not like at least Jane. I'm not sure if it was the whole family. And it wasn't until after she died that the women of the family were invited to live at Chawton Cottage. And that is our summary of Chapter 17 of Persuasion by Jane Austen. My name is Frances Duncan. You can find me at francisduncanwrites.com and on Twitter at Francis underscore Duncan. Thank you for listening and we wish you happy reading. Just popping back in to let you guys know that we have merch now. I haven't actually got merch with my face on it. That seems a little weird to me, but if you really want it, let me know and I'll do that. There's merch of the Jane Austen Society of Aotearoa New Zealand's logo, uh, some Jane Austen merch, and some Pride and Prejudice Heavily Pride-focused merch too. It's on Redbubble, and the link is in the notes. Happy buying!